0: So the sergeant hung up the phone, called me back in, and pulled out his Miranda card and read me <laughs> read me my Miranda rights. Right, right. And then said, uh, "Did everything you tell me before still apply now?" And I was stunned, but I said yes. And he said, "Okay, get out." <laughs>
1: I don't think that's quite how that's supposed to go. That no. is <laughs> not.
0: But I'll tell you, Jared, th- that incident and that one part of what happened resonated with me as I moved up the ranks to mm. sergeant, lieutenant, captain. And so I had had, no, oh, probably four or five officer involved shootings that I personally responded to and it gave me insight into the mind of the officer involved and the procedures and a human aspect and uh, to be very careful in the follow-up and not be that sergeant who did that with me.
1: Welcome to the Hey Chaplain podcast. My name is Jared Altick and I'm a chaplain with the police department. This podcast exists so that cops can hear encouragement from other cops. You might not talk directly to a police chaplain, but I'm hoping that you might listen to a chaplain talk to other cops about being a wiser, healthier person. From the LAPD to Scotland Yard, the guests on Hay Chaplain are giving you the wisdom gleaned from their experience so that you don't have to learn the hard way. Today, we continue our conversation with Jim Dudley from San Francisco. Jim was involved in an officer-involved shooting as a patrolman in which he and his partner were nearly killed. We talk about how that incident has influenced him through the rest of his career and into retirement. We discuss how encouraging preparedness in the next generation is a great mission for older and retired officers. And then we shift to talking about some of the challenges in modern law enforcement and the city of San Francisco specifically. But we only talk about politics for a few moments because I had questions about the movie industry in California and its interaction and influence on law enforcement. Jim is a fellow movie buff, and we talk about TV shows and movies that are set in San Francisco and how that impacted the police department. And Jim weighs in on what he says is the greatest cop TV show ever made. Here's Jim Dudley. Part of the reason I was really eager to talk to you because um, not only have you had a, you know, a critical incident, but then you also continued in your career for a long time after, and you were in supervisory roles and in executive leadership, and now you're teaching. And, and it, it, it seems like you might have a better perspective on how things have changed over the last 30 years and, you know, what's still applicable and what's not. So maybe let's start with that. W- what is exactly the same? Your experience translate exactly over to someone who has a similar experience now. But what What is always going to be true in a use of force incident for an officer?
0: Yeah, I think it starts with what the officer's going through immediately after the incident. What's two weeks when you're on vacation, or what's two weeks when something good is happening to you? It's nothing. It's a blink of an eye. But yeah. two weeks off, post shooting is an eternity, and yeah. all the things that affect the officer sleepless nights uh irritability, second guessing, hearing what people are saying, and people say the weirdest things after <laughs> an incident like that in that in that time period, I really struggled with whether or not I really wanted to continue being a cop and yeah. For me, you know, I'm a, a Catholic, lifelong Catholic. Now I'm a 9-11 Catholic, right? I go, I go to church when I really need to or something. There's an emergency. <laughs> sorry to say. But, uh, you know, I, I felt the guilt. I felt like uh, maybe I should feel worse than I do. And then hmm. you meet with a psychologist and, you know, they have their own, their own thing. And, and then at some point, that officer has to reconcile internally, but still, you have all these external things happening, yeah. right? You're you're going yeah. through this process. You're you're being interviewed. You're waiting to be cleared. You're going back for training to make sure that you're not hesitant using your weapon again. That you're right. clear on all the rules of use of force. The you know talking with your partner, your family, everything else, right? So, so me as a supervisor, um, all of those things are were on my mind in responding to those cases
1: yeah. what has become different in the last 30 years maybe good or bad
0: yeah so i was just going there with with a peer uh, support plan we had that in place at the time of my shooting but uh immediately after this one guy came up to me and started asking me all these weird questions and then i went over to look at the peer support sheet and he was on it mm-hmm. and i thought we need to do better training for peer yeah. support and yeah. And I got involved in the program. I I became a peer support officer. As I moved up the ranks, I had more involvement, made sure that we were dedicating time and training to those officers. Uh, 100% uh, uh, advocate for uh, the psychological uh, support that we got for all officers, not just officers involved in critical incidents. I mean, you know... I'm sure, through you know your countless responses to crisis, that people, human beings, are not built to support you know this ongoing, repetitive trauma. Yeah. Whether yes. personal through physical encounters or abuse or uh, these kinds of incidents, but also vicarious trauma in you know, interviewing child victims and and victims of uh abuse or sexual assault. I mean, it it is real your cup gets really full fast. And unless you get some kind of help, it just keeps overflowing. So I've always been an advocate for that uh, throughout my career. We have gotten better. We did uh appoint a police psychologist, I think a few years after my shooting, not not because of my shooting, but um we had a, a police lieutenant who was also a PhD in psychology, and he really, uh, Al Benner, got the, the the project kicked off and moving and really built a good program there where we have so much support now, not only in San Francisco, but across law enforcement with uh, great support systems, um, employee assistance programs, uh, physical fitness, wellness, nutrition, uh you know, the, the emphasis on the importance of sleep, the importance of, uh, you know, re- reduction of alcohol intake if, if you're yeah. so inclined. Um, yeah. And now uh, we have apps like Calm for the general public, but we have things like Cortico, a great app for law enforcement and other other apps where – and we have our, our national 988 number yeah. where if you feel like you're in a crisis or suicidal, you can pick up the phone – And start talking to somebody. Yeah, and there's other great hotlines that um, they're answered by former law enforcement officers who know what you're talking about. Cop line, cop line, right? Yeah, cop line. Yep. Thousands, thousand percent support. Better now. We have programs to smash the stigma of calling for mental health support. And I think the big drawback remains that cops feel like their identity may be suspended or they'll yeah. be drummed out if they ask for help uh, and it becomes public or, or gets to the point where they need medication or, you know, we're, we're carrying firearms and we have the authority to deprive people of their freedoms and to use force up to lethal force. So, um, you know, when we talk about mental health, uh, that's a big concern for, for cops. And so, they they think long and hard before they seek help. And, and unfortunately, some people don't seek help, despite all these resources.
1: If there's something in your law enforcement career that's affecting you in some weird kind of way, and you recognize that this isn't normal and it's bothering you, there's mm-hmm. never been a better time to ask for help. There's no guarantee that everyone will respond the way they ought to respond to you. But, but overall more people are willing to 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 give you good help and not just throw you away or think less of you that 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 it that climate has never been better than it is now in my opinion.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're right.
1: You served for 32 years and now you continue to be involved helping police with your podcasting and your teaching. Why do you keep involved why don't you just go fishing somewhere and you know right off into the sunset
0: (laughs) yes uh because you know if i stopped maybe they'd start throwing dirt on top of me Um, (laughs) no i i I think that uh that incident crystallized um how important it was to be totally invested in training and how to be a hundred percent on board and i'll tell you there are cops There are great cops out there, great social cops and great hardworking law enforcement cops. And the crossover between those two is, I wouldn't say it's rare, but I mean, you know who those people are when you work with them, right? You can have a beer with them, talk football, movies, have a great time with them. And when they're at work, they're 100% doing their research. Keeping up with the changes, the technology, all that, and doing a great job. And so I guess my goal was to make that uh, more prevalent in our profession, to truly be professionals. And I guess it crystallized for me to be an advocate of law enforcement officers, to to better prepare them. And I never pushed my own two sons to join the police department. They both joined on their own. One of them, the first one surprised me when he, he was go- in college still. And he came home and told me, Hey, I took the test today. I think I did really well. I said, Oh, that's great. We're talking. I said, "What? what was the subject? He said, it was the police test. And I was <laughs> floored. <laughs> he never told me he applied, never told me he was going to take the test. And he's a, uh, He's a great cop and he's a, he's got a great circle of social friends and my younger son, same thing. If anything, he's more gregarious and, and just, uh, so affable. And I'm so proud of both of them and they're both great cops too. And so I guess that's what I'm, uh, I advocate for. Um, I'm a mentor to a lot of my students. I try to share my experiences in my podcasts, not to brag about them, but to to share my experiences. Right. I think too many people in my boat who do retire, they leave and they take all these great experiences with yes. them, and it's a shame. We need to we need to pass that on to the next generation. I'm a big proponent. You've heard me. And, um, I think, I think more of us should do it. I think more of us should, um, pitch in when we can be mentors, volunteer. Believe me, I don't teach because of the pay. I have a, (laughs) I have a great pension, a great retirement, but I really do enjoy the energy of the students. I do enjoy in, in the environment we're in now where, you know there's some indoctrination going on and when I teach and I tell uh the students the realities and show them the data, I see so many aha moments.
1: Yeah
0: where yeah. I I think I'm converting some to saying, okay, wow, that you know, he's being neutral as he can, but giving out the data yeah. and showing why. You know, for for example, the there's such huge criticism on law enforcement today about uh, bias and uh, inequality in, in policing. And we look at, for instance, homicide solvability rates. Mm-hmm. And we look at homicide solvability higher in white and Asian communities, but lower in black and brown communities. But there's reasons for that. And we can point to technology like ShotSpotter that hears shots, sends dispatch, police car gets there, rounds on the street, maybe a body on the street and still no one in that community's picked up the phone and called nine one one. And so when we, when we discuss that in class, you know, it's the responsibility of law enforcement to build community trust too, but you can only reach out so far and you need to have the other side reach back. And in some of those communities, when there's no cooperation, how do you solve a homicide with no evidence, no witness, no license plate, no description, nothing yeah. to go on. So, I mean, when we look behind those headlines, there's more to it than these two percentages of solvability rates and and to determine that police just don't care in some of these communities because yeah. that's yeah. not the truth,
1: yeah, a lot of the narratives today are overly simplistic and uh, prejudiced against law enforcement, and that's uh, ultimately unhelpful because yeah. if you're if you're in trouble, there's only so many places you can call <laughs> that can actually send help. And right. so, so yeah. So tell me, do you feel optimistic about like the students you're seeing now? How do you feel about the future of law enforcement?
0: I am totally optimistic. I've uh, teamed up with uh, Rob Kate from interview. Now I've teamed up with uh, Janae Gasparini, a police officer and a professor in New York. And we've done presentations on reaching out to Gen Z and changing the way we're training and changing the paradigm of you know you asked me at the start of the show how, how was it 40 years ago how did you do it what what kind of training did you get what kind of force options did you have we really need to do a paradigm shift to looking at Pedagogy from a different standpoint of standing up in front of a classroom and talking for an hour mm-hmm. and hoping all the students in the room caught all of it, I mean multimedia yeah. experiential learning, small group learning repetition video you know people learn different ways and and we 're doing that now we 're trying to get that at police academies um, we 're appealing to young people. Who, who really have a fear of the unknown, right? There's that imposter syndrome that's really yeah. prevalent among a lot of our kids, especially since COVID, right? I think COVID was a kick in the gut to a lot of kids that hurt their confidence. And so, and here we are three years removed from 2020. So if you had a 16 year old in high school, they're, they're our audience now uh, to get into law enforcement careers, but we've got to make it, uh, safe. We've got to demystify it for them. We've got to have them practice a test, run through the physical agility skills test to yeah. to see what it's like to feel it because they're tactile learners, right? Yeah. And so, if we do all that, we should be able to stimulate uh, Recruitment and retention again, and I think that, you know, I think a lot of people are seeing through some of the mistruths and the the fallacies from 2020 and 2021, and I think, you know, more and more you're seeing uh, cities across the nation saying, wait a minute, that defund movement was a bad idea, we're seeing these increases of crime, we're realizing that uh, civilian response isn't cutting it and it's it's dangerous for some of them. So let's get back to policing and let's stick to policing and not try to have police be our do all say all arm of a government. And I think that that's the slippery slope, right? When yeah. when we're dealing with things like homelessness in itself is not a crime. You know, it'd be great to have other agencies like public health and public works and park rec jump in on homeless issues and take cops out of the equation unless there's, you know, it's a crime involved or violence involved.
1: Right. Right.
0: So, yeah. so I think rather than just be the catch-all for government, we need to define police, the community and the, and the legislators need to say what we, they want us to do and then give us the tools to do it. And I think you're going to see a, a rise in uh, policing again.
1: I was had been in San Francisco years and years ago. Went to Fisherman's Wharf and did all the touristy things, and sure. and it was wonderful. This was thirty five years ago, probably, and then I came back as an adult with my wife, and and we drove you know across Golden Gate Bridge and down Lombard, and and it's beautiful and neat and and unique. But then we turn on Leavenworth Street, and and we saw. So many people who were were bent at the waist, lost. You know, mm-hmm. just they. They just it was. It was horrible. Uh, yeah. We saw fecal matter and and broken glass and 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 just awful human misery. And my right. wife wept as we drove through San Francisco, mm-hmm. this beautiful city. Sure. Uh, what do you? What do you think can be done with that current crisis?
0: I think you're starting to see a change in so many people up in arms. And I'm sorry for your experience and your wife especially. But yeah, the deterioration is just abominable. And in a city with a $14 billion budget... There's no way that should be. Yeah. But there is, uh, you know, we're a liberal city. And when, you know, 1980, we were a liberal city. But now, um, I wouldn't say they're carpetbaggers, but you got all these people from all over coming to San Francisco, getting to elected, to be elected officials, to be, quote, progressives. And I don't know why they call them progressive, because we are not going forward. <laughs> Regressing, <laughs> it sure yeah. seems like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the the drug... Trade has been ignored. I had, I was at a, um, I've been in a lot of committees where we were looking at policy changes and we were looking to get people up off the street back in 1999. And we took a model from New York, uh, the Community Justice Center model and we tried to bring it to San Francisco. And when I talked about what I just said, public health needs to get involved. They need to bring back vans that take these people off the street that can't talk they they're sleeping yeah. with their eyes wide open their diet we had 720 overdose overdose deaths in 2020 yeah. get them off the street and take them to a rehab facility <clears throat> and bring back the ordinance that said if you're like that three times within 30 days then you go to a mandatory restrained clinic and yeah. using compassion as their flag We've had these progressive politicians say, no, it is their right to be like that on the street. Yeah. And since we've decriminalized drugs, we don't, we want drug enforcement to be the lowest priority of the SFPD. That coupled with COVID and defunding and impaneling a police commission and a district attorney who prosecuted cops for doing their job. Totally demoralized the police department. So calls yeah. for service went unanswered. Arrests dropped dramatically. You had a motto uh, by cops that was Fido. I'll spot you the F, put yeah. it and drive on. Yeah, And yeah. so yeah. it was like, why get out? Why wrestle with this guy? use force and then he dies or you get brought up on charges or you get sued.
1: Yeah. In that environment, why why would an officer even attempt to answer most calls? I mean, it right. just seems like a lose-lose situation.
0: Yeah. So. I mean, San Francisco, why did we why did we vote in as district attorney the son of literal terrorists? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his his Parents were uh, Weather Underground terrorists, and then when they went to prison for killing a guard and shooting officers, uh, he was raised by two other members of the Weather Underground. Yeah. And then we voted him in as district attorney under this progressive agenda, and then we got, you know, of two years of heavy crack epidemic, he prosecuted, I think, two fentanyl cases <laughs> in two years.
1: Yeah.
0: And so I was a big proponent of the DA that we have now, and she's, I think, prosecuted almost 500 cases Mm. in less than a year. So I think you're seeing uh, a grassroots turnaround, people saying enough, enough with the progressive candidates, but there's a shortage of candidates too. And Yeah.
1: uh, Yeah. Well, the people who could step in, uh, many of them have left. Yeah. Uh, Some of them have left all of California. Right. So, Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah important. along with a large part of the tax base. Yeah. If yeah. you follow the money, that's when it's really going to hit home that when we lose the tax base and we still have a $14 billion budget, then some severe decisions are going to have to be made. Yeah. And yeah. the community-based organizations, the money's just being handed out. No audits, no um, checking on capacity, no understanding how successful their programs are. It's just handing money out the, out the door of City Hall. And. But I think people are sick of it. And, and what you described, you know, that, that fentanyl overdose where they're yeah. literally standing, where they're seconds from tipping over and falling, yeah. crashing on the sidewalk. So this public defender who later ran for judge, that'll give you another hint. She told me at a meeting when I suggested that we have public health scoop these people up that it is everyone's God-given right to lay on the sidewalk in their own urine feces and vomit if they want and I just looked around the table to the rest of the committee like is are we all yeah. there are we all in agreement with that wow
1: yeah 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 That's, it's surprising that that passes for compassion yeah, right that, mercy.
0: yeah and they point to evidence-based harm reduction programs and it's failing in Vancouver where they love to point to the success and it even yeah. failed to a degree in Portugal wh- yeah. which is the you know the the king of harm reduction, let them do it programs.
1: Now for something completely different. So <laughs> San Francisco is a, a city that's been featured in a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows. Yeah. When you were in executive leadership, there would have been multiple movies and TV shows that, that showed San Francisco. I'm thinking mm-hmm. particularly uh, a kind of detective show called Monk. Um, Oh, yeah. What to what degree when your department is being represented? I mean, that was San Francisco PD that he was supposedly working with Mm -hmm. uh, this character, this detective character. To what degree does that help or hurt a department? I mean, how do you guys feel about it? Were you are you consulted at all on what they're (laughs) going to put in the TV show and how they're going to represent your city?
0: You know, the fictionalized version of San Francisco slash Vancouver slash L.A. or wherever else they're filming. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I think, I mean, the old show, Streets of San Francisco and Bullet and things like that, I think those were great because I, or, or even Dirty Harry, right? The Dirty Harry Perfect. series. I, I look at those sometimes and say, hey, that's my office or I worked in that office. Yeah. I mean, they're real, real scenes. And then you get the Nash Bridges, where you know it's it 's Miami Vice in San Francisco, and <laughs> uh, you know half of it 's not even filmed here, yeah, who yeah. cares but I mean the ones where and monk you know comedy slash mystery show right, i right. I ran into them filming in Chinatown one day and i I had a chat with the guy who played uh, i guess it was his lieutenant, the Buffalo Bill character from right. Uh, Silence yes. of the Lambs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was really cool. I said, "Man, you are a scary dude, but you seem like a really nice guy." <laughs> but uh yeah, I was never—I I never watched that show so much. But with the uh, the chase scenes and things like that, I remember the the Rock mm-hmm. with some of their explosions and the Hulk uh, that was filmed in San Francisco. You know, I think the story's the story, but I think people still see the background and say, oh, I want to go there, I want to go there. But I haven't seen, you know, any really harmful shows based in San Francisco. Like this, I think it comes down to the storyline. And if you look at some of those, like The Badge or or the movie, like Training Day, you know, both LA, I think. I mean, those would really give a sour connotation to the city. Throughout my career... I've actually, as a patrolman, I I actually had site security a couple of times for movies or commercials, things like that. But they, they usually feature the best parts of San Francisco. I think the Zodiac might have been the only one that really hovered in that area you were talking about, like the, the Tenderloin with the sort of gritty, dirty area of the city. But usually they go to San Francisco for the sights. I think The Rock was one of the greatest ones with uh whenever somebody and I'm sorry I missed you when you came to San Francisco because oh. I would have taken you to Alcatraz. Oh it's yeah. my it's yeah. my favorite place to take out of towners and I've been there uh, easily a dozen times. And I've talked yeah. to so many San Franciscans who've never been there. But <laughs> it's one of my favorite spots. And so, so picturesque.
1: It's something that's changed in me since being involved with law enforcement the last several years is that uh, now when I'm watching a TV show or a movie and the cops are cannon fodder, mm-hmm. uh, that deeply bothers me. I don't think I've thought about it before, but yeah. that's a that's a common trope in a show that... That, you know, the hero is protected. The hero, he doesn't, you, know, you know, every bullet misses him. But just uniformed cops get mowed down by the dozen. Sure. And, yeah. and that's something that's bothered me. And then kind of an addendum to that, cops that are just fools and corrupt and that kind of thing. Because that's not the type of officer I typically meet. Most of my officers are exceptional Sure. And and yet their representation on TV is that they're all just these these jackbooted thugs right. that that are looking for a way to to screw you over, and that that is another area that that uh, that offends me. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah.
0: No, I know what you mean. Um, when the Matrix first came out, and the the ads showed. Uh, all these cops just getting shot to pieces by the matrix characters. I was like, how awful is that? But I think, you know, my wife knows I love movies and I take the leap of faith and I just see it for what it is and, uh, try to put that off. I know it's fiction, right? Um, One of the things we're watching right now, off the off the topic of cops being abused, but um, Madam Secretary. I don't know if you've ever seen that show.
1: I haven't. I haven't with no.
0: Tay Leone. and uh, it's really good. Um, it's probably three or four years since canceled, but it was seven seasons, and they talk. In in, I mean, it's there's some awful comedy in there, but it it mostly talks about. Uh, the Secretary of State office and what they do and deal with behind the scenes Hmm. and these global events that they're dealing with. And I'll tell you, it's given me a different perspective on when we're reading the morning paper, you know, at breakfast, we get the New York Times and the San Francisco Chronicle. And some of these things that happen uh, in other countries, I'm like, wow, this, I mean, that's, this is real, right? When, when something that comes up, You can see the direct effect on the United States and how we have to intervene, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a stake in it. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so those those are really good shows for me. I don't I don't watch a lot of cop shows. That's
1: not uncommon. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Students ask me, are there any that really relate to policing as real? And I really do think The Wire from um, you know Baltimore. Yeah, hundred percent. We watched the first season. And I told my wife, gosh, I wish everybody saw this because it is so real. The, you know, the public housing and the drug dealing and the you know, enlisting these young kids uh, and their motivation to get out of poverty and all that. That is so real. Yeah. And the cop's frustration. Yeah. Just as real.
1: Jim, thank you so much. That was fantastic. I really appreciate you being on the show.
0: Hey, it was my pleasure. Always great talking to you.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much.
0: Hey, thanks for what you do. I know you're a big support system for so many in law enforcement. I I totally appreciate what you're doing.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. Jim mentioned that far too many cops retire and then take all of their great experience and hard-earned wisdom with them. First, thank you, Jim, that you are in the classroom and on your podcast sharing with the next generations of law enforcement officers. Second that's the central part of what i'm doing here with the hey chaplain podcast i've spent years now hunting for wise cops who are willing to share what they've learned and what they've seen so that i could understand law enforcement better that helps me out as a police chaplain the podcast is a way to capture that and share it with ten thousand of my closest friends the only problem is that there's something like 700,000 cops in America and countless retired cops, soon-to-be cops, and friends and family members of law enforcement. Then you can multiply all of that across multiple countries around the world. So please help me spread this wisdom and experience around to as many police as possible. Tell people about the show. Leave a five-star rating and a nice review on the podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts. Contact me and I'll send you a Hey Chaplin magnet to put on the refrigerator at the police station. Buy me a virtual coffee so that I can buy more magnets to put on the refrigerators at all the police stations. I want cops to hear these conversations and I want them to be healthy both now and after they retire. I believe that this podcast is going to be part of reaching that goal and I'm thankful to you for helping me out. On the next episode of Hey Chaplin.
2: I expect the bad guy to lie to me. Uh-huh. And so the first time the bad guy lies about something, they would catch him and say, you're lying. If you continue to lie to me, I'm going to take you to prison. I could care less about a lie. I let that, I just put that in the back of my head while I'm still interviewing uh-huh. and uh, let him tell three or four or five lies. Um, it's OK. I expect to get lied to. And guess what? If the roles were reversed and I was sitting in his spot, I would probably lie, too little children we don't teach them to lie i mean from day one they want to point the finger at somebody else or say it wasn't me or it fell on its own um they don't want to admit yes mom and dad i'm the one that disobeyed you and i broke this item well the bad guy does the same thing and so i let him lie and then i would start bringing out the evidence i go yeah i know you mentioned that um i know that not to be true because of this this and this and so I'll tell you what, let's start all over again, and let's tell the truth this time.
1: This show is commercial-free because listeners buy me a $5 virtual coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash You don't even have to do that. You already get the show for free. But thank you. It really does mean the world to me. The views expressed here are the personal views of the host and our guests and do not necessarily represent the views of any law enforcement agency or its components. If you like this episode, please share it with a cop or someone who loves a cop. Thank you for listening to Hey Chaplain, and as always, pray for peace in our city.